0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus stumbles, negotiators make progress, but is the U.S. Senate on board? Pressing pause, Netflix growth slows as the lockdown boom fades and cafe cuts. The Hong Kong airline slashing jobs and closing its regional carrier. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Wonderful to be with you as always and lots going on in the show today. We'll introduce you to the Common Pass app system that could finally get us traveling internationally again, plus former presidential candidate and stimulus superhero Andrew Yang will be here to talk Trumponomics, Bidenomics and what kind of fix the U.S. economy needs. So it's a perfect day to summon the Yang gang as financial aid talks continue, U.S. futures relatively unchanged at this moment. We'll call it watchful. Nancy Pelosi's 48-hour deadline for these talks wasn't in fact a deadline she cited to progress last night. But I think the biggest roadblock seems to be the Senate Republicans who are giving no indication of being willing to agree to a big financial aid package just two weeks before a presidential election when the Senate's up for grabs. We'll be discussing that very shortly. That said, firm's that would benefit have been big gainers. Heavy machinery firm Caterpillar hitting all time highs yesterday. Wow, look at that chart. Airlines have also rallied over the past few weeks, too. The market's still baking in some form of stimulus help for these guys. The good news. Was already baked into the cake, I think, for Netflix investors. Shares are lower, as you can see pre market, after weaker than expected subscription numbers in the third quarter. They had a record first half, I remember. All the details on that coming up, because I want to take you to currency land. The Chinese yuan posting its biggest advance against the US dollar in more than two years amid Chinese growth hopes. The pound jumping to versus the dollar on optimism that the UK and the EU can come to some form of trade agreement and avoid a hard Brexit. We've been there before. There's no end to global negotiations going on. It's clearly now time for action. Let's get to the drivers and to the financial aid talks, which resume today. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, if only this were a two-way fight between the Democrats and the Republicans. The problem is it's simply not. It's a three-way fight. And this involves the Senate Republicans. And right now, uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't sound like he's budging.
1: No, no, it doesn't. And it sounds like we keep hearing the same thing, that they're still talking, and that's good news, that they're making progress, but differences remain. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that they're making progress, but differences remain, uh, I'd be a rich woman. Look, it's it's clear here that they're they're trying to get to yes. The White House wants to get to yes. Steven Mnuchin wants to get to yes. But the Senate is more recalc- recalcitrant here. There are many members who just don't want to spend $2 trillion and honestly don't think what they're getting in return is, is good enough of their own objectives. So where we've up, it's anybody's guess. But it certainly feels, um, it, it certainly feels like a long shot to me. if They get something done here in the next few hours.
0: Yeah, it's a political calculation here for some of the Senate leadership. Do you want right. to agree to a big deal, annoy some of the fiscal conservatives here, but potentially align yourself with the president if you agree to this? Probability. Christine, that this gets agreed by the Senate before the presidential election, does it even come on the floor of the Senate?
1: I mean, and if it does, then it sort of forces these senators to say it's almost a litmus test, right, for their for the president of the United States and where they where they stand on that. Look, I've been hearing more recently about concerns about deficit spending from some quarters of the Senate than I have in a long time. There weren't really many questions earlier in the crisis about spending borrowed money. And now you're starting to hear that again. And I wonder if they're hearing it on the campaign trail, if they're hearing it from home. But I do know that there's incredible popularity in the polling for more stimulus. I think a recent poll I saw saw said 72 percent of people think there should be another stimulus. And the question I get from real people across the country every day is, when do you think there'll be a check in the mail for me, Christine? I could really use another check in the mail because my earnings haven't gotten back to where they were before pandemic and I have all these other costs. So I think there's a huge public popularity for, for another deal, but you just can't get the politician to decide on how big it is, what's in it. And then there's this political calculus so close to the election.
0: Yeah. Deal or no deal this year, that check's not arriving before the beginning of next year at the earliest. And that's the heartbreaking thing. Politics before people, sadly. Christine Romans, thank you for that. As the battle over stimulus continues in Washington, President Trump and his rival Joe Biden are gearing up for Thursday's final presidential debate. Jessica Dean reports from Nashville, Tennessee, the scene of their final encounter.
2: At President Trump's campaign rally in Pennsylvania, no signs of the coronavirus pandemic that's impacting much of the country, as supporters stood without practicing social distancing and very few wearing masks. Trump telling the crowd in Erie he was not expecting to make a stop there at all this year.
3: Before the plague came in, I had it made. I wasn't coming to Erie. I I mean, I have to be honest. There's no way I was coming. I didn't have to. I would have called you and said, Hey, Erie, you know, if you have a chance, get out. But we had this thing won.
2: While the president continued to make false claims about the status of the coronavirus crisis in the United States.
0: We're rounding the turn on the pandemic. Normal life will finally resume.
2: The truth is... Cases are on the rise in at least 26 states this morning. And Pennsylvania has seen spikes in new cases in recent days. Pennsylvania's been shut down long enough. Get
1: your governor to open up Pennsylvania.
2: The president's complaints come just nine days after the White House Coronavirus Task Force urged the Keystone State to maintain aggressive community mitigation efforts. Former Vice President Joe Biden is off the campaign trail to prepare for tomorrow's final presidential debate, but his biggest surrogate is making his first appearance in Philadelphia later today. President Barack Obama is looking to give the Biden campaign a massive boost, with Election Day now less than two weeks away. This as Trump uses the final days leading up to the election to distract from the massive crisis at hand, attacking everyone from Dr. Anthony Fauci to Biden to journalists. Sources telling CNN the president abruptly walked out of an interview with 60 Minutes at the White House Wednesday.
3: You have to watch what we do to 60 Minutes. You'll get such a kick out of it. You're going to get a kick out of it.
4: Leslie Stoll
3: is not going to be happy.
2: Meantime, Senator Kamala Harris telling voters now is the time for the country to work together.
4: It is about
5: building back up better. It is about unifying our country. We are all in this
1: together and we're going to get through this together.
0: Jessica Dean reporting there and be sure to tune in to CNN for the final presidential debate. Our coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday. That's midnight in London and 7 a.m. in Hong Kong on Friday. OK, let's move on. It's a press pause for Netflix pandemic boom. The service reporting a slowdown in new subscribers for the third quarter, as well as lower than expected profits. Shares are down some 4% pre-market. Paul DeMonica Monica joins us on this. I think this is a bit of great expectations, Paul, quite frankly. How much Netflix can we watch even in a pandemic? And they had a record uh, first half of the year. What do you make of these numbers?
6: Yeah, the the numbers, let's be honest, Julia, they were phenomenal. This is a company that is continuing to grow very rapidly. But that being said, I think investors are worried about maybe the fact that the numbers were so strong in the first half of the year, as you alluded to, maybe that's pulled forward a lot of the demand. Are there that many subscribers, uh, people left, particularly in the United States, that haven't already signed on to Netflix? Where is the growth going to come from? I think increasingly it's going to have to be international. And that's why Netflix is really looking to bet more on hot Asian markets, because, you know, the U.S., I think we're we're close to being a mature, saturated market for streaming.
0: Oh, I love that you've gone there, Paul. Speaking of hot markets like Asia-Pacific, 46% 46 of all global paid net ads coming from the Asia-Pacific region. And if I mention the word Blackpink to you. Would well, you know what I'm talking about?
6: I would because I looked it up, not necessarily because I am the world's Cheat. most
0: foremost K-pop expert.
6: But I do my homework, Julia. So yes, I uh, I will admit I'm not I'm not out there streaming Blackpink and BTS, but apparently K-pop is a pretty big thing uh, in uh, in America and the rest of the world, and obviously that is something that I think Netflix is benefiting from having these you know, series that uh, can cater to K-pop fans. So you're seeing strong growth in South Korea and Japan in particular in Asia. But one issue is that Netflix is still trying to replicate its success in India, which is clearly the next hot lucrative market that Netflix really needs to become a bigger presence in if it's going to have the type of global growth that matches the success it's already had in the U.S. and other Asian markets.
0: Wow, Netflix now has to take on Bollywood. How exciting. But they did say that the number of Netflix originals quarter on quarter next year will be higher than we've seen this year, despite some of the uh, the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the issues over production. So quite fascinating to see what they come up with. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. And thank you for Googling K-pop stars. Ever the professional there. All right, from a pandemic winner to one of the pandemic losers, Cafe Pacific reducing its headcount by almost a quarter Hong Kong airline, eliminating 8,500 positions, including almost 6,000 layoffs. Selina Wang joins us with all the details. Selena, I was poring over some of the, the statistics here, and actually, they're being a lot less aggressive than we've seen in terms of cuts from, from other airlines. Talk us through the details of this. What are they doing here to try and cut costs?
7: Julia, that's right. There has been worse, but for Cathay Pacific, this is the worst layoffs Mm. in the airline's history. This amounts to a cut of about a quarter of its position. So that's more than 5,000 jobs cut in Hong Kong and hundreds of jobs overseas, in addition to shutting down a regional carrier called Cathay Dragon. Now, Kathy Pacific was already struggling financially before the pandemic. They were hit very hard by the Hong Kong protests, which had deterred many mainland tourists from coming. And then when the pandemic hit, Kathy Pacific didn't have any domestic market to cushion the blow from the closures in travel, the borders shutting down. And so they've actually experienced a 98 percent fall in passenger traffic compared to a year earlier. Now, they have received some help. They received a five billion dollar rescue package led by the Hong Kong government, but that hasn't been enough to cushion the blow. And as you mentioned, we've seen this industry overall struggle incredibly hard. You saw layoffs about 20 percent at Singapore Airlines nearly 30 percent at Qantas. And of course, in the U.S., they're laying off tens of thousands of people in this industry. That's despite Congress giving the industry a 50 billion dollar bailout package earlier this year. And I just want to read to you a comment from the CEO of Cathay Pacific, who said that, quote, the global pandemic continues to have a devastating impact on aviation. And the hard truth is we must fundamentally restructure the group to survive.
0: I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? I was looking through some of the numbers here and and they're still going to be burning through cash. It's absolutely devastating. And even in their most optimistic scenario here for 2021, Cathay saying less than half of its pre-COVID capacity will be used. Selina, what are we what are we thinking here? Do you think actually they'll have to take further steps to cut capacity if we don't see some kind of dramatic rebound in in passenger travel next year?
7: Well, Julia, you're seeing the numbers there, and many analysts are asking that question mm. as to whether these cuts are actually aggressive enough, even though they are historic layoffs. When you pour through that data, as you said, they have been burning through 1.5 to 2 billion Hong Kong dollars of cash every month. And this restructuring is only going to reduce that by about 500 million Hong Kong dollars. So that's still a major cash burn. Now, of course, executives are saying that they think this is enough to get them through the pandemic, through the crisis. But of course, that's dependent on several factors, including whether or not a vaccine is going to be widely available as fast as they are making their projections on. It also depends on how many travel bubbles Hong Kong can strike with other countries around the world. But we know that this pain is going to continue for carriers around the world. The International Air Transport Association is predicting that things aren't going to get back to normal until 2024. And they are reporting some staggering industry statistics as well, predicting that the airline industry is going to burn through $77 billion of cash during the second half of 2020. And Julia, get this, that amounts to $300,000 per minute.
0: Wow. I mean, it's devastating, isn't it, for the industry, also devastating for all those workers that continue to lose their jobs and um, our hearts are with them and their families. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. And there's going to be more Cathay Pacific later in the show, too, because they're trialing a new health app for passengers aiming to facilitate getting us all back into the skies and taking up more international travel. Selena, thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Witnesses tell CNN Nigerian security forces opened fire on protesters in Lagos, causing multiple deaths. The Lagos governor denies those reports of fatalities, but says one person died from blunt force trauma. Quote, Demonstrations against police brutality have been taking place now for nearly two weeks. Ireland is re-entering a nationwide lockdown with stay-at-home orders starting at midnight. The country is struggling with coronavirus. Ireland reported 13 new deaths on Tuesday. That's its highest number since May. The restrictions will last for six weeks. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But still to come, stimulus Yang-Yang style. Former U.S. presidential candidate Andrew Yang says Americans need cash now. He joins us after the break with his take and the app that hopes to save the travel industry. We speak to the CEO of the Commons Project as it trials a digital health passport. Stay with us. More to come. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. futures are relatively unchanged at this moment as we await fresh updates from the financial aid talks in Washington. 48 hours to get an agreement Before Election Day, fast turning into another 48 hours. It sounds like a 1980s movie sequel, if you remember that movie. The two sides still negotiating, but they still seem to have a fair way to go. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang tweeted this yesterday. Imagine having the power to ease the suffering of millions and failing to use it. Hmm. So much is at stake in these talks for millions of struggling Americans. And Andrew Yang, who ran on the platform of giving Americans a basic income of $1,000 a month to help them navigate economic uncertainties, joins us now. Andrew, great to have you on the show. I have to say I was one of the 127,000 people who liked that tweet. Who is it directed at? And do you think we can get a deal before Election Day?
4: It's directed to the people who are negotiating a possible stimulus uh, and relief bill. And I'm cautiously optimistic that they're making progress hour by hour on this, Julia. Uh, The political incentives could not be higher because the fact is if we don't get this passed now, we could be waiting until a new Congress is seated and a new administration comes into power, which would put us into February. And if you can imagine millions of struggling American families trying to get by, For the next four months through a long cold winter uh, without really a leg to stand on that's what we have to avoid and so i'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to see a deal come together in the next number of hours and days
0: you know i've been talking on the show that i'm afraid that politics gets put before the people in this instance and actually that's been the case now for for many weeks are you sure that the senate republicans don't get in the way to block this for political reasons
4: That is going to be a a major potential stumbling block, Julia. But if you look at the map, there are over a dozen uh, Senate Republicans who are in tightly contested races. uh, And for them to block stimulus uh, bills now would be really, really difficult for them politically. A lot of them are running for their political careers in places like South Carolina uh, and places that, frankly, you would not think Republicans would be threatened. Um, So I believe this would pass the Senate because of political considerations uh, on the part of many people who are in tough battles right now.
0: Yeah, we hope you're right. Andrew, you started a not-for-profit. It was called Venture for America. It was going into local communities to look at what was suppressing innovation, to try and help small businesses to tackle poverty and inequality. I know you've also, on the campaign trail, before it sort of went virtual, you were also talking to, to communities as well. Is there anyone at a local level, at a city level, that's getting this right, that could provide a some kind of template for what needs to be done in, in America more broadly?
4: There are a lot of awesome entrepreneurs working on this in communities around the country. Uh, And certainly Pittsburgh has been a relative success story on this dimension. There are other markets that have also reinvented themselves very successfully. Uh, But there's a lot of work to do. And the pandemic has accelerated these economic changes in a way that's going to kick more and more Americans to the curb. And we're way behind on helping many of these communities find a, a different sort of path forward.
0: I mean, the universal basic income was something that you discussed when you were on the the campaign trail, but I don't hear it being discussed by Joe Biden or Kamala Harris at this stage. Do you think we are anywhere closer to doing something like that, to to boosting a, a living wage, providing a living wage in this country at some point in the future?
4: A poll just came out that said 55 percent of Americans are are now for a universal basic income. I wish it were that high when I was running. <laughs> uh, <laughs> over 80 percent are for cash relief during the pandemic. Uh, and so this is not going anywhere. Now dozens of mayors have picked up the cause. They're launching basic income trials from Los Angeles to Atlanta to St. Paul. Uh, and Kamala's cash relief bill in the Senate actually looks a lot like a basic income uh, during this recession where she was calling for 2000 a month for every American making below a certain amount. So I believe that universal basic income is just going to gain energy and momentum over time. I think it's going to pass sooner than anyone might believe.
0: How long does it take, Andrew? And can the country afford it? Because there will be fiscal conservatives going, yeah, it sounds really utopic, but actually the country can't afford it financially. I guess your argument would be we can't afford to socially not to.
4: Well, the fact is the money after it gets put into people's hands just circulates right back into the economy uh, in the form of groceries and fuel and car repairs and daycare expenses. It's going to shore up millions of jobs in small businesses uh, in towns. In cities around the country. So this is a major step forward in a trickle-up economy. It's going to stimulate demand. If you look at what's going wrong with the economy right now, it's low demand. It's that even if you have the wherewithal, you're not actually comfortable uh, spending your money. And so if you put money into people's hands, there are some countries that even put money into people's hands and said, hey, you have to spend it or else it disappears after a couple of months. Uh, and it's those kinds of of measures that are exactly what we need right now.
0: Yeah, must spend money. But admittedly, the other angle there is being a confident enough to go out. And for that, you have to be in control of the, the virus as well. You built up a community of people, the, the Yang Gang members, who I think are avidly waiting to see what your next step is going to be and, and how you're going to move here. I keep watching these mayoral New York mayor candidates stepping up. And Andrew, I just wonder whether you want to give us any information. Are you going to try and go to be the next mayor of New York or is there still time to decide?
4: I was just in Philadelphia campaigning for Joe and Kamala. My attention's focused right now on helping the country turn the page and get new leadership into the White House. After that, we're going to see how I can add the most value. One thing I will suggest that that I think we need to do is speed up our national approach to technology and social media issues. Right now, social media is making it harder for our democracy to function. It's eroding our mental health. And if there's something I can do to help with that, I would love to do so.
0: Yeah, some might say it's making it impossible, quite frankly. Andrew, come back and talk to us about that specifically, because we have one or two strong views on this show about that as well. Andrew Yang, great to have you with us. Thank you for that, CNN political commentator and former Democratic presidential candidate. There's more First Move after this. there at the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back to First Move. And US stocks are open for trade this Wednesday. Stimulus talks and high profile earnings remain a big focus for investors today. We're opening pretty much unchanged. You can take a look at that. A bit of a spike higher there for the Nasdaq in very early trade. Telecom giant Verizon posting an earnings beat this morning. Sales came in a touch light, but this is the key. They raised their 2020 guidance. We are seeing companies being rewarded for giving guidance about the outlook. Meanwhile, Snap investors have a snap in their step this morning. Shares are soaring more than 20% after reporting a greater than expected 52% revenue rise and an 18% jump in daily active users for the Snapchat app. Clearly, investors are liking it. All right, that's the open this morning. Let's move on because U.S. restaurant owners say they desperately need more aid to make ends meet. Among them is Cameron Mitchell. Back in March, he had to close all 37 of his restaurants, including this one, the Ocean Prime Beverly Hills. Mitchell went from washing dishes to running a food empire over the course of almost four decades. He has more than a dozen brands across a dozen U.S. states, including Ocean Club and The Barn. Cameron Mitchell is the founder and CEO of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, and he joins us now. Cameron, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say, when you have 37 restaurants, a shutdown and going through a pandemic seems like a military operation to command. Talk us through um, how it's been and how you're doing now.
3: Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning, Julia. So thank you for having me on. You know, in my 40 years in the restaurant business, this is the most difficult uh, time I've ever uh, been a leader through and had to work through. So, uh, you know, it was devastating. In four days, we uh, went from, uh, uh, we had record sales in January and February, and we're doing well. And then in four days in March, from March 15th to March 20th, we had shut down virtually all of our restaurants. And it was a difficult time for our people in the uh, thousands of our employees and uh, families that work with us so uh, we've been able to you know finally reopen in May and um, and work and uh, but you know it's, it's a difficult year and we've you know we're gonna finish up the year down 40% in sales uh, and that is uh, on, on the margins in the restaurant business uh, it's unpalatable
0: I mean, if your sales are down 40%, how much of your staff have you managed to, to keep if you compare it to where you were in, in January, February of this year?
3: Right. We had about 4,500 uh, people uh, before the pandemic, and today we're at about 3,500. So we still have a 1,000 jobs out there that we've not been able to bring back yet.
0: And what about as the, the weather gets colder in clearly in various parts of the country, what kind of steps are you taking to make provisions for that? Because that's going to be another huge challenge, never mind the, the rise in virus cases that we seem to be seeing across the country.
3: Right. I think um, today I feel uh, as unsure about our business and our future as I did in March. Uh, it, we're, we're back almost to square one in that regard with the the closing of the patios, uh, you know, we we can heat some of them a little bit, but you know, once the north gets down to 40, 30, 20 degrees, it, it outside dining is over, and it's going to be over here shortly. So uh, we're not looking forward to the winter, uh, to you know, and I, I hope for the best as we go through. But when we have our dining rooms open at 25 percent capacity, or 40 percent capacity, or 50 percent capacity. Uh, it just continues to make uh, it very, very challenging.
0: Yeah, Cameron, you're painting a, a very bleak picture here. Can you survive without more financial help from the government? A, clearly a great deal was made of the, the Paycheck Protection Scheme to try and support small businesses. Clearly, for many of them, money ran out and there's simply not been, been further provided. The hope is that they can right. come up with something. What are your right. expectations?
3: We- we need Congress to act uh, and act now uh, you cannot in, in Columbus where I live you cannot open the paper without seeing a restaurant closure virtually every single day um, you know what and it's a misnomer out there about small businesses yes uh, uh, small businesses are, are challenged but in our case uh, in, in the full-service restaurant industry whether you have 36 restaurants or six restaurants or one restaurant uh, the pain is the same, and, and the reality is, without the PPP dollars that we got in May, we wouldn't have been able to reopen. We would not have been able to survive. So I thank Congress for that. But uh, now here we head into the winter, and again rising uh, case counts, and will guests uh, uh, want to dine inside in our restaurants? Uh, still, at least 40 percent, 50 percent of America is still uh, afraid to go in restaurants, even though. Uh, the safety and sanitation procedures that we have in our company we just installed uh, a new uh, HVAC AC system that removes almost 99.5 percent of the pathogens out there in the air so um, we're doing the best we can to make a safe environment for our guests we work with the Cleveland Clinic uh, on our sanitation protocols Uh, so um, we're just kind of hoping for the best, but without uh, additional stimulus and additional PPP dollars, uh, you know, I'm not sure our company will survive till next spring, uh, but I know for a fact that many, many, many other restaurateurs will not uh, survive. And if we want a real recovery in the United States um, and not uh, just a K recovery, uh, then we need to get the stimulus out here for these businesses that need it to ensure, you know, not just us, but the hotel industry, the travel industry—we've right. uh, all been decimated—and and we need that support.
0: Yeah, it's not just one sector. You're, you're quite right. I mentioned at the beginning, and I did it for a purpose. That, you know, you began washing dishes. You built this empire over four decades. If we take a step back from the immediate challenges and some of the perhaps structural challenges and the criticisms of the U.S. economy today and the inability for certain subsets of the population to rise and build build, build businesses, Cameron, do you believe if you were starting out today, you could build what you've built in the same way uh, over the same time?
3: Um, maybe. I mean, that is conjecture, I think, but... Uh um, you know to get started today clearly you know over years uh, uh, there'll be more restaurants after the, the many failures we have but it, it, it's gonna take time and for us in terms of the recovery I mean uh, we're saddled with, with additional millions of dollars worth of debt and and for us to grow out of this economy going forward uh, in in the next year years we're beyond and actually create new jobs is going to be very difficult again without additional financial support so it's not just today it's about our future
0: yeah so that's the message whichever government takes over next year it's about providing the support needed to get people whether they're starting a new business or continuing a new business through this pandemic and beyond
3: yeah and there are you know thousands of stories like me out there Uh, that's the one thing that's great about this industry that we're in is You know, people can start and build their own businesses and it's just an American tragedy to see these uh, businesses that people have spent 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, even longer building, uh, getting decimated here in in these short uh, six months here since the pandemic is upon us.
0: Yeah, and it's happening all over the world. Cameron, great to have you with us. Um, Hang in there. Thoughts are with you and uh, fingers crossed we get some support from the government. Cameron Mitchell, founder and CEO of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. Thank you, sir. All right, up next, a pilot project to help us fly again. We take a look at the digital health passport that could save the travel industry. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. For the sake of the global economy, the airline industry and jobs, and for the simple joy of globetrotting, The world needs to get moving again, even as the pandemic goes on. And there might be an app for that. It's called Common Pass and it'll be tested on transatlantic flight landing in Newark, New Jersey later today, as CNN's Anna Stewart explains. The
5: world is a
0: patchwork of travel
5: restrictions. Closed borders, quarantines, pre-travel testing requirements, all of which keep changing. It's enough to put people off travel altogether, and that's damaging for the aviation sector, for tourism, for the whole global economy. However, one solution to travel could be a passport, not this kind, but this, a digital health passport. The app has been developed by the Commons Project Foundation in partnership with the World Economic Forum. The concept is simple enough. A traveller checks the app to see what the COVID-19 rules are at their destination. For example, it may require a PCR test 24 hours before travel. The app tells the traveller where they can get a government-approved COVID-19 test and upload that test result to the app. If negative, the app generates a QR code confirming the traveller's compliance to be scanned by airline staff and border officials. However, testing prior to travel has its limitations
0: at that moment that person was safe to fly or migrate or whatever, whatever it is because they were PCR negative, which is probably sort of you know, meaningless if they were um, about to turn PCR positive five minutes after you did the test.
5: Common Pass says screening minimizes the risk and is already a requirement for entry into many countries. A trial of their app is underway for volunteer passengers flying with United Airlines and Cathay Pacific between London, New York, Hong Kong and Singapore. If it goes well, Common Pass hopes more airlines and airports will use it in the future.
8: We've actually managed to convene over 50 countries that have come together um, through dialogue uh, that led up to Common Pass, most of the world's biggest airlines, most of the world's biggest airports. And I think one of the realisations that they've come to through these discussions is this kind of system has to work in a globally interoperable way. It can't only work within one bubble or with one travel corridor.
5: If a COVID-19 vaccine is successfully developed, CommonPass Pass hopes travellers will be able to log their vaccination into the app. Yet, there are concerns too little is known about vaccine efficacy.
0: I wouldn't feel comfortable as a, as a sort of Minister of Health to be, um, you know, stamping and sealing the legislation on the use of antibody passports on this basis.
5: Immunity passports are pie in the sky, at least for now. Helping people to take to the skies with an app that simplifies and coordinates COVID-19 travel restrictions is at least on the horizon.
0: Anna Stewart, CNN, London. And you heard from the man behind Common Pass there. He's the CEO of the Commons Project, and he joins us now. Paul, fantastic to have you with us. I mean, this sounds like a fantastic idea. You're effectively at a sort of easy-to-use collection point for COVID tests from nations all around the world. So you're cutting across language barriers, misunderstandings perhaps on COVID test results. It should be a great tool that people can use.
8: We hope so. Obviously the world has really shut down because of COVID and we're hoping that we can contribute a little bit to helping reopen the world and by bringing something that really is a global trust framework that allows countries uh, to begin to trust each other and allow travel to resume.
0: You mentioned there in uh, Anna's report, 50 different countries have signed on to do this. Just give us a sense of time frame here to have this up and running. Obviously, we mentioned the trials are underway.
8: There are trials underway uh, between Singapore and Hong Kong, between London and New York. We're gonna be launching additional trials through November and December across six continents with many of the world's largest airlines. And we're anticipating broad Uh, global-scale deployment beginning from January.
0: So, as uh, Anna said as well, the vaccine is also going to play into this as well. As people start to get vaccinated, this information will also feed into this app so that people can say, hey, I don't need to do a COVID test. I've got a a vaccine certificate too.
8: Absolutely. Right now, there is an understandable focus on testing because it's what Mm. we have as we wait for vaccines to arrive. And Getting a test before departure, again on arrival, are, is a way of reducing the risk uh, for, of travelers who are coming into a country to, uh, to spread COVID. There are no risk-free solutions. There are no immunity. There's no such thing right now as immunity. Um, but ultimately, this is about risk reduction. It's about giving countries the confidence to know that someone actually did get a test before they got on the airplane. And that's intended to give countries the confidence to begin to open up whether they're through some of the travel bubbles that are now being opened up or through relaxation of some of the quarantine restrictions that are currently in place.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because the quarantine is the big issue. I know a lot of people that say, look, I'd be confident enough to get into the skies now and, and trust being on a plane. But it's the two week quarantine, perhaps either side, that's prohibitive now as far as travel is concerned. One of the other questions that I got when I was started to talk to people about this was, is this app going to be used to track people to make sure that they're following through on their quarantine?
8: Absolutely not. That's not a part of what we're doing. Really what this is doing is just allowing people to get tested or eventually get vaccinated in one country, be able to use that information to demonstrate that they satisfy the requirements of the country they want to visit. The health data, whether about that test result or that vaccination, doesn't actually transfer. This is built so it protects that privacy of individuals' health data. So an individual makes their data available to the platform to to document their compliance, but they don't actually have to convey their health information either to the airline or to the government of the country that they are visiting.
0: And obviously, Europe's really hot on this and you're making sure that this all meets the GDPR privacy rules, I'm sure. But again, I read an article in The Lancet that was saying there are ethics and ethical questions surrounding these digital passports, not only the risk of fraud, to your point, if you don't have to say, hey, look, this is all my medical information and I'm providing it to you, that's that's one thing. But how do you know that actually the COVID test results or indeed the end, the vaccine uh, certificate is the, the person that you're seeing being waved in front of you on the app?
8: Because ultimately this is why we're building a common trust framework and a chain of trust. And so only information from trusted labs or trusted vaccination sites are able to flow into common paths. And part of that is ensuring that it is the same person that got that test that is now uh, getting on an airplane or crossing a border.
0: And there's no way I can log into the app as someone else and just show their details.
8: Correct, because ultimately you have to have the identifying information that is consistent with the identifying information that was collected at the time of testing or at the time of vaccination.
0: Yeah, this is so important. I mean, I know, and it was actually quite fascinating for me that the the inspiration from this was what was done in some of the African nations when they had trucks piled up and they were trying to work out how to get supplies across borders. And we're like, okay, we're going to have to trust each other in terms of COVID tests and and what we're seeing here, Paul. Just translate that to what you're producing, because I know you have a a lot of history in your career of pulling together lots of different people and collating data and information and, and sharing it. What do you see as the biggest challenge between now and getting this up and running in January?
8: It it really is about building momentum and trust amongst the many Mm -hmm. countries. Um, We're at a moment um, in the world where borders are closing and walls are going up. And restarting our interconnected world really um, requires governments to begin to collaborate and trust each other. You alluded to the the inspiration for Common Pass, which was our collaboration uh, with the East African community in the six states of, of East Africa, who had a problem earlier in the pandemic of needing to allow trucks carrying vital supplies among their countries. And so they developed, with with our collaboration and support, a system to allow truck drivers to get a negative lab test in one country and use that to document their status as they cross the border, the land border. That was the inspiration. Obviously, we're now focused on uh, on air travel, um, but we're also in dialogue with some of the world's largest shipping companies um, who... who need uh, ships to move and seafarers to be able to come, uh, go to and from uh, their ports of call.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, fingers crossed it works because it would be um, something incredibly useful to have and we all want to get back to the skies. Paul Meyer, CEO of the Commons Project, thank you so much and to keep us updated with progress on the trials. After the break, COVID coupled with a tech revolution, how the world of work has changed and will change. That's coming next. Welcome back to First Move. 85 million jobs could be on the line over the next five years as a consequence of COVID-19 and big changes in technology. That's according to a panel from the World Economic Forum hosted by our very own John Deftarius. Just take a listen to this.
3: The fact of the matter is, you know, COVID-19 comes on the top of a lot of transformational change that was already taking place in the world of work. Mm. Technology being the most obvious, but there are others as well. And here's the problem. I think COVID-19 has exposed extraordinarily, brutally, the inequalities, the precarities of people's situations in the world of work. And as we move forward towards this more digitalized future of work, I fear that those could be even more accentuated unless we build in, and this is mentioned in your introduction, issues of equity, issues of social protection.
0: So many important issues. And uh, John Defteris is going to join us tomorrow to discuss all things energy and, of course, the impact of the presidential election. So don't miss that. Can't wait to discuss with him. And finally, Estella, first... For NASA and the United States. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft touched an asteroid on Tuesday, reaching out to its robotic arm to collect a sample from the surface. Scientists are hoping to study the sample to piece together more about the solar system's evolution. The space probe has orbited the asteroid Bennu for nearly two years now. It's scheduled to compete its return journey to Earth in 2023. Wow. Out of this world, literally. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow.